0: There is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the active destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Good morning, Dimitri. Welcome back to Blueprints of Disruption. Uh, this time we're ranting, though, alongside uh, Dimitri Lascaris, bright and early, right after the ICJ ruling and Canada's abysmal response to it. How are you dealing with all of this, Dimitri?
1: I think yesterday was a stunning, amazing, historic victory for South Africa and above all the Palestinian people. And um, from the moment that the order was read out, uh, I was um, frankly somewhat aghast at the reaction of a lot of people in the Palestinian solidarity community to this decision, because I think that they are with the best of intentions, misunderstanding what this decision actually means. Um, and you know, I'm happy to get into this and to unpack it, but look, as a lawyer, that doesn't make me infallible, but I've been practicing law for over 30 years. I'm a litigator. Uh, I go to courts, make submissions to judges, read their decisions, read their orders, advise my clients on what, uh, compliance with an order of a court entails. I've been doing this for decades, and my read of this decision is it is an absolutely crushing defeat for Israel.
2: You wouldn't get that if you were reading uh, the headlines of the big papers in Canada, right?
1: Of course not. They're going to spin this, uh, it's just their, you know, inherent nature to spin this in the way that is most favorable to the genocidal regime, uh, that they've been doing this for decades and they're not stopping now. But you know, we as, uh, you know, intelligent adults and citizens of conscience need to set aside their spin, ignore it, and read this decision for ourselves with a critical mind. And if you do that, it's not very long. And think just from a common sense perspective, what compliance with the order of this court would entail. There is no other way to read it than as a crushing defeat for Israel. Israel, to comply with this order, must stop Immediately, it's attacks on Gaza. Whether it will do that is a separate question—a critically important question, but a separate question. Insofar as the court's order is concerned, there is no other rational interpretation of this order, and we can get into the language. And I'm, you know, happy to explain why I read it that way. Uh, but that's my uh, uh, unequivocal reading of this order.
0: Okay, let's get into some of the rulings. Right. There were rulings and then provisional measures. And then we will get into how this moves forward, right, how we see the global community reacting, how we see our Canadian officials reacting and how we can leverage this as a victory for Palestine. But um, there are some clear positives that I think folks could feel right off the bat as you're listening to the justice read it, that. You know, there was a question of even jurisdiction brought up by Israel. I mean, they're going to throw everything there, but the court did rule absolutely like South Africa had a right to bring this to them. They have a right, they have jurisdiction to decide on it. And even that itself was a hurdle to overcome, right? And so, and this isn't done. These, this is a provisional ruling with Israel having to report back a month from now and, I imagine somewhere down the road we get a final ruling on whether or not we are witnessing a genocide. We all know that we are. But do you find that those were key points? Like they, Israel tried to say everything was baseless and, and the whole court was out of order, right? Like they didn't even, shouldn't even have to come and defend themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I never expected Israel. To, I mean, look, I've been saying from the moment I heard South Africa's submissions that Israel is going to lose and i was using very strong language I, I my my you can go on my website dmitriloscarisat.org and it's all there i've been saying this over and over again for the last 2 weeks israel is going to lose uh, i would be shocked gobsmacked if uh, south africa loses this case uh, but not even i imagined the scope of this victory like in particular what i want to highlight is that every single western judge voted in favor of South Africa. To me, that is absolutely devastating to Israel. I mean, we are talking about a U.S. judge, the president of the court, who served in the U.S. State Department uh, when Hillary Clinton, one of the most pro-Israel fanatics in the Democratic Party, was the secretary of state, voting in favor of South Africa, rejecting, dismissing the bogus, outrageous lies that Israel fed the court uh, on the day that it made its submissions. We have the judge from Germany. I mean, you could hardly find a Western country that is more obsequious and more supportive of Israel, no matter how heinous it's, it's crimes, than Germany. Uh, India, not a Western country, but a government that is very uh, sympathetic to Israel. Its judge uh, you know, voted in favor of South Africa's position. Uh, the Slovakian judge, the Japanese judge, the French judge, again, another country whose government is extremely supportive of Israel, every single one of them voted against Israel and in favor of South Africa and the Palestinian people uh, on, on all the core issues, jurisdiction, standing, and whether or not a plausible claim had been made out against under the Genocide Convention. Uh, so, I, I mean, just on that basis alone, This is a a crushing defeat. But then when you get into the particulars of the language that the court employed, the sweeping language of its order, uh, I don't know how anybody sees this as anything. I'm I'm repeating myself as anything other than a, a massive victory for South Africa.
0: I think a lot of that has to do with the word ceasefire, because everything around right now, you know, since October 7th anyway, All of the movement has essentially been centered around that term of a ceasefire, even though it is problematic in itself. We we did almost an entire episode on whether or not it's a ceasefire we're asking for or whether it's a cessation of Israeli hostilities. Uh, Either way, I think the absence of that Is what is allowing people, and then the manipulation by the media to kind of emphasize that there was no ceasefire word in the ruling. And people are really hung up on that. And
1: I completely agree that, by the way, that is the problem. That is what's causing the confusion.
0: And I think, like, if we had been more cautious, well, it's hard because we we kind of came to the agreement (laughs) many times that, like, ceasefire was a uniting word right it, it perhaps was not nuanced enough because it did a lot of erasing and it delegitimized Palestinian resistance and there was a lot of problems around focusing just on the ceasefire except for the fact that it brought like moderates around a little bit it it was an easy ask right it didn't sound radical it was it was coalescing um but now we're seeing that anything that doesn't resemble what those demands were explicitly felt like a loss to a lot of people. So let's keep focusing on the pluses, because I think, uh, Dimitri, when when you say a victory and and you can't look at it at anything but a victory, you also mean the provisional measures as well, Like because you could arguably say that you couldn't enact the provisional measures they've ordered, which we'll kind of go through, without a ceasefire for all intents and purposes, as folks look at a ceasefire, right? Like you can't deliver humanitarian aid. You can't prevent mass killings. You can't preserve the evidence if you're carpet bombing uh, the area and operating as the Israeli army has been doing, right? So how are you feeling about, you know, ceasefire, no ceasefire?
1: Yeah, so we've been running around for weeks, those of us who support the Palestinian cause, chanting ceasefire now. And of course, we were absolutely right to do that. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it is an entirely moral and uh, necessary and justifiable demand that we've been making. But there's no magic in the word ceasefire. Uh, and this is a point that I made yesterday, like literally within minutes, I was watching this commentary on Twitter from people I know to be supportive of the Palestine cause. And they were all talking about the fact that the court hadn't used this word. And I I tweeted out, there's no magic to this word. So we need to, it's one thing what we say in a protest, but when you get down to a legal document, you got to read the language and think about what it means. So I'm going to read it to you, okay? And I'm quoting, Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, in particular, A, killing members of the group B causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group C deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part and D imposing measures intended to prevent births. Israel must ensure with immediate effect that its military forces do not commit any of the above described acts. Now, let's just unpack that for a second. First of all, the order is addressed to Israel. It's not addressed to Hamas. There's nothing in here about, which is remarkable, about Israel's compliance with the court's order being contingent upon a cessation of hostilities by Hamas. It's really quite striking. The court's saying, whatever Hamas may do, this is what you gotta do. We are addressing ourselves to you, Israel, and then it says, all measures within its power. And then it says, killing members of the group. Who, what's the group? The group is Palestinians, not innocent Palestinians. doesn't say innocent Palestinians. Israel doesn't get to, you know, uh, kill Palestinians whom it regards, whether plausibly or otherwise, as guilty, as culpable, while preserving innocent Palestinian life. This thing applies to all Palestinians in Gaza. And that's not just killing. They can't even cause serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. And I was thinking this morning, what is, what is an example of this? Of course, you know, just to sort of dramatize my point, we all know, uh, as the court, I'm sure, understood, that the population of Gaza is already terrorized and traumatized beyond words. The mere fact of sending armed drones into the skies of Gaza, buzzing overhead, causes mental harm, serious mental harm, particularly to the children of the group. I mean, imagine the children of Gaza, going what, what they're going through, what they've gone through for the past several months, the horrors they've experienced on a daily basis, seeing armed drones, hearing them above. That must be causing them severe mental harm. They can't even, they can't even send, I would go so far as to say, armed drones into the skies of Gaza. This is a sweeping order. It is unimaginable to me that Israel could continue, could comply with this order and kill anybody in Gaza, drop any bombs on Gaza, fire any tank shells into Gaza, send any armed drones into the skies of Gaza. It is, it is better than a ceasefire. So people, I think, need to step back and not get fixated on that word and read the order.
2: Yeah, w- w- one point on that is that even before October 7th, uh, it was found that 90% of the children of Gaza suffered from PTSD, right? Yes. And and I think one important point, um, you know, when we're talking about genocide is that it, it can't only be framed in the last hundred or so days, right? The conditions of genocide existed in Gaza uh, long before Uh, The recent conflict yes
1: i completely agree
0: like that's one of the best points about this although the court kind of does date it as what they're ruling on is starting on october 7th you know they don't take in the occupation into consideration you could arguably say that the provisional measures they've ordered require an end to the occupation because even if they stop bombing gaza now and just left it as is uh you would still have a genocide on your hands. And we we talked about this yesterday on our Twitter space, how the genocide began long before October 7th, right? The, the measures to, to not lower the birth rate, to cut them off, to harm them mentally and physically and, you know, displace them. All of that started before. And so these measures don't don't say bring it back to October 7th levels. They don't specify that, right? They say take all measures necessary to stop this entire genocide. And so I think, like, if we use our imagination to, whether we can do by legal definition or not, but that that is a cessation of the occupation and the blockade on on Gaza that, that was causing such harm. So like Dimitri said, better than a ceasefire.
1: Yeah, I, I would say you know, okay, wiggle. There's some wiggle room there. Let's suppose when it comes to the importation of weapons into Gaza, I don't see anything in this order that would stop Israel from um, preventing weapons uh, being uh, and uh, being delivered into the Gaza Strip. Okay, because it's it's the order applies to humanitarian aid, but. Does it have to allow in all humanitarian aid necessary to sustain the population, uh, in medic, you know, uh, physically and uh, mentally? Absolutely, absolutely. And it can't do anything to prevent that from happening. Uh, that is within its power to do, and that is abs- that is crystal clear from this order. And I, I really I can't stress enough the importance of understanding the scope of this order. People out there are legitimizing this bogus interpretation of this order that Israel is advancing. Israel wants you to believe that this order allows it to keep killing members of the group. It just doesn't. And when we say, because the, the the order doesn't include the word ceasefire, it effectively allows Israel to do that. We are legitimizing and lending credibility to Israel's bogus interpretation of this order. So this isn't just a question of, you know, people getting... Making an innocent mistake. This is a mistake that has very serious consequences for the Palestinian people. It is extremely important that we accurately characterize what this order is and we don't allow Israel to mislead the public about it. Israel, in effect, has been ordered to stop attacking Gaza immediately in every sense of the word bombing it, droning it, tank shelling it, uh, blocking humanitarian aid. It has to stop and lay down its weapons completely. Now, without exception, that's what this order means. And we need to be saying that publicly so that, you know, our fellow citizens who aren't quite sure what to make of all of this and they don't have time to read the order and they're not going to think about this independently, that they aren't deceived into thinking that the court has allowed Israel to continue the massacre. It hasn't. It's told it unequivocally. It must stop now.
0: I think it's like not just the media either, right? Because you have Melanie Jolie out there simply reaffirming Israel's right to defend itself. And she does not, in her statement, describe hostilities by Israel. She still is calling it, how does she word it? Like that a humanitarian crisis that Palestinians are experiencing, like as so though it's just happening to them without, uh, without an aggressor. And she emphasized, you know, the need for protection of civilians is paramount, but then doesn't acknowledge that that's not even happening right now. And like, there's no, nothing in her statement that recognizes what you just said. And, And that's not to doubt you. It's just to say that it's not just simply the media, right? Like, they've got their Canadian government telling them that, you know, everything is still
1: a go. 100%. And this is why it's so important for us to get this right, because it's it, it, Israel is going to lie to the public about what this order means. The media is going to lie to the public about what this means. And yes, our own government is going to lie to the public about what this order means. So it's incumbent upon us not to fuel these lies, not to legitimize these lies and to tell the public unequivocally that there is no way to read this order other than as a demand that Israel immediately cease all military attacks on Gaza without exception. That's what this order means. And we need to say that in response to Melanie Jolie's nonsense. We need to say it in response to the mainstream media's mischaracterizations. And above all, we need to push back against Israel's government. I was reading reports yesterday. Uh, There's Netanyahu predictably saying, oh, the court didn't order a ceasefire. You know, we can continue bombing Gaza. No, no no, sir, that's not what this order says. That's got to be our response.
2: I was going to say, I I found it interesting that um, uh, Rosemary McCarthy, who's the former Canadian ambassador to the United Nations um, from 2015 to 2019, um, she was criticizing uh, the statement by Melanie uh, Jolie. um, And it's... Kind of surprising, I guess, how few people there are when we say that the media. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't surprised at the National Post's headlines, but I maybe was surprised at the Toronto Star's headlines. Right? This has been such a concerted effort, and at the same time, the timing of um, the cutting of aid to the UNRWA um, felt like they had that stashed away in their back pocket for this moment right so not only are we twisting the narrative and quote reaffirming the right of israel to defend itself but we're also cutting off aid uh, to a united nations group for reasons that are not justifiable because a 0.04 percent of their staff might have been involved in october 7th right so this is such a, a a massive disappointment and failure from Canada's part, and not. And I mean, we really stand alone here. I saw a thread where the the various nations of the world's responses were all documented, and only Canada and the United States um, were not. We're, we're twisting the narrative, right? Um, Absolutely,
1: you are quite right, uh, Santiago. Thirty thousand people are employed. By UNRWA, approximately 100, 150 of whose staffers have been slaughtered mercilessly by Israel in the last three months, making this the deadliest conflict for United Nations staff in the history of the organization. Okay, according to Israel, 12 of those 30,000 employees were somehow involved in the October 7th attacks by Hamas. We don't know how. They were involved. We have not seen an iota of evidence to back up uh, the fact that any of them was involved. And given Israel's uh, extraordinary capacity and uh, unqualified record of lying shamelessly about, you know, Palestinians and about its own behavior, there's absolutely no reason why we should give it the benefit of the doubt. And people will say, "Well, you know, the UNRWA director decided to fire these people. So what?" UNRWA might be acting, the director, out of an abundance of caution. He doesn't want there to be any potential argument by anybody that anyone associated with this organization was involved in terrorist attacks. So he, just purely to protect the organization, he might have said, look, I before I conduct any kind of an investigation, I'm going to separate this organization from these 12 people so that Israel can't use this as a reason to continue killing my staffers. The fact that he fired these 12 people doesn't, shouldn't give you any comfort at all that what Israel is saying is true. It could be complete nonsense, but let's say it's true. We're talking about 12 out of 30,000 people. And this is an organization, what Israel has done to this organization is far worse than anything these 12 people could have done. It's not only killed 150 uh, staffers of the organization, it's also attacked schools repeatedly schools where innocents are sheltering in Gaza it did this it's been doing that for over a decade by the way it's absolutely brutalized UNRWA. and uh, I I want to focus for just a second on the timing of this announcement okay does anybody think n- we should never ever assume that any important announcement by our government particularly when it comes to a foreign conflict that is uh, you know of importance to the government, that the timing of what it does is coincidental. It's never coincidental. That should be your operating assumption. It's always Why calculated. Go- I'm sorry?
0: It's always calculated.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Why did the Western governments announce this yesterday? Does anybody seriously think they announced this on the day that the ICJ issued its decision by coincidence? No. They. If you look, I, 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 w- I went yesterday, I was trying to find, after this announcement came out, I was trying to find the exact number of UNRWA staffers who've been killed. Okay, so I entered UNRWA in Google, staff, killed, Gaza. That was my search. I got article after article after article about Israel's allegation that 12 out of 30,000 employees, unsubstantiated allegation, that 12 out of 30,000 employees were involved in the October 7th attacks. I couldn't find the information I was looking for, because there were so many of these articles out there already. They saturated the public discourse with talk about UNRWA being involved in terrorism on the day when the ICJ uh, rendered this absolutely crushing decision, crushing from the perspective of Israel. That was intentional. And I'll give you another example in the recent past when they did this. On the day that South Africa completed its unbelievable submissions, just powerful, incredibly eloquent submissions before the ICJ, they started bombing Yemen. Was that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. All of this is calculated, this should be your operating assumption, to distract us from the truth. The truth is the ICJ has ruled overwhelmingly 15 to 2, with every Western judge joining the decision that it is plausible that Israel is committing genocide, it has rejected out of hand every single argument that Israel made. You know, the human shields argument, all that nonsense, the argument that the people who were making genocidal statements were fringe figures, and they were just talking out of their asses because they were very upset at that particular moment, but that the Israeli policy has been to meticulously defend the civilians on the ground. I mean, they rejected every single argument that Israel made. They want us to believe that this decision is somehow a victory for Israel when it, in fact, is a total, total defeat.
0: I want to go back to the aid question a little bit. Like, first, I don't give a fuck if 12 of their people were Hamas fighters, for fuck's sakes, out of 30,000 during the occupation. And you're like, I know... This is assumed, but we didn't state this, that that humanitarian aid is being withdrawn during the biggest crisis that they've had during a during a genocide. And that is the one thing that our officials will acknowledge, that it's a humanitarian crisis. And at that time, you can like honestly, for me, you could put all of the other facts out the fucking window. But like the that the fact that they withdraw aid at this time, <laughs> at this when the court is acknowledging the suffering that Gaza is going through, uh, whether you think it's justified or not, you know it's happening. And, and the courts even ruled that humanitarian aid is, is a key part of this. That's one of the measures that Israel now has to allow humanitarian aid in there. They have to. The two biggest aid providers, well, not the the two biggest, but two large aid providers just drop off. And that is so particularly cruel and I think should be so jarring to Canadians who are still looking at Trudeau as, you know, a compassionate leader or, you know, because people are clearly they might be dropping in the polls, but anybody considering voting for them at this point, I think the aid question, it's one thing to kind of hold that as a card to play to hide the other bad take that you're going to have. This one is so in particularly cruel. Right, to, to just stop aid in this moment. But um, you, you mentioned...
1: Sadi- there are no words. Sadistic, psychotic no. monstrous, you name it. Genocidal. Uh, um, absolutely. You, you just, mentioned, I want to go, uh, you talk about like
0: Israel trying to call some of their uh, ministers and top officials that made clearly genocidal statements as fringe or perhaps in the heat of the moment. And that just makes me want to bring up one of the provisional measures that at first I laughed at because I, you know, a lot of these things I'm looking at going, Israel's not going to do this. Right. And and we'll get to that. But uh, one of the orders is to prevent and punish Israelis for incitement to commit genocide. So Israel didn't say those folks didn't say that or that they're not sometimes saying these things, but that they're fringe. But so now for two things, the onus is now on them. To It kind of paints them into a corner because they came to the courts claiming one thing. They're going to have to hold those people accountable then. Right. They, they, they probably won't. But it also exposes another one of their responses as total bullshit. Right. One of their claims of defense was really that they're a law abiding country. They're a democratic state. Uh, ruled by law, and anything that happens outside of that law will be taken care of in house. You know, if any of our soldiers do commit war crimes, don't worry, we will punish them. Or, you know, like that was one of their statements to the court. So the court seems to have turned back on them and saying, okay, fine, if this is true, you show it to us. You you try those people that are calling for the destruction and the flattening of all of Gaza, and. You know, you stop them from doing that as well as show us your courts. Show us that your courts are doing whatever is within their means to prevent this genocide. And, you know, a month from now, I don't know how many more Gazans will be dead. But Israel's going to have to come back to the court. And what are they going to have to show? like, Dimitri, what's your, and Santiago, like, how are you seeing Israel respond to these measures, as well as, like, preserving evidence when we know their their policy is really just, like, bomb and move on? Like, they've admitted they do not count the dead. They don't care.
1: Uh, Well, uh, I just want to talk for a moment about this very important point you've made about incitement. Uh, And, you know, again, I put myself... In the position of a lawyer, and I, if I were, I ask myself, what would I say to Israel if they hired me to advise them on their compliance with this order? And I'm saying this, you know, I'm trying to be as objective as possible here. Uh, what I would say about this particular aspect, you know, they they are being directed, ordered to punish, uh, not just you know prevent, but to punish incitement. So I look at this order in its entirety. And the first thing that strikes me is that the court actually cited three examples of incitement. One of them came from the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, which, by the way, I think is an absolutely uh, devastating indictment of this man, that the International Court of Justice, the president being an American who served in the Obama administration, using his own words as one of three Of many, many possible examples of incitement where he said, you know, that there are no innocents in Gaza. They're all responsible. It's a lie that, you know, uh, they're not culpable because they could have risen up and overthrown Hamas. That's what he said. And that was cited. So now I'm looking at this as a lawyer advising Israel in my, you know, uh, hypothetical world. And I'm like, I don't know how you could comply with this order without charging Isaac Herzog with incitement. The court has just told you that it regards that as one of the most outrageous examples of incitement. It it used it as one of the three examples. It could have chosen dozens and dozens of of others. There's page after page in South Africa's application about this, but it chose that one. How do you say you complied with this order without in charging the president of Israel with incitement? The other example was Yoav Galant, of course, whose words were even worse, calling the people in Gaza human animals saying we're going to shut off all the water, all the fuel, all the food, declaring arrogantly to his troops at the outset of the offensive that he was lifting all restrictions upon them. So the court has told you, and it's obvious on its face, that this is incitement. How do you comply with this order without charging the defense minister of Israel with incitement? Uh, This is a nightmare of an order for Israel. So uh, I, I just, I cannot stress enough how, how, how difficult this makes the life of the Israeli government, and the you know the, the this report, Jessa, which you referred to, this requirement that it come back with a report. Again, I'm like, if I'm advising Israel, I'm like, oh my god, this is a complete disaster, because if Israel doesn't go back with a report in a month's time, which it might not do, it might just thumb its nose. There's just no doubt at that point. It's a slam dunk that Israel is violating an order relating to the prevention of genocide. It's not just any order, okay, in a very important way. So Israel has a strong incentive, because at that point, it's just, you know, it's going to be obvious. It has no argument that it isn't violating this order on the prevention of genocide in Gaza. Uh, So if it comes back and says, okay, we're going to submit an order, if that order discloses, or that report discloses that it's killed anybody, you know, it can't say, well, these people were being used as human shields. Because this this doesn't allow Israel that wiggle room, this order. It says all members of the group, you can't kill any Palestinians, Israel, any. You can't, you know, and you tried that argument out on us. We heard you, your lawyer, Malcolm Shaw, with his wig, tell you that these people were all being used as human shields. We didn't buy it the first time. And our order doesn't leave you any any uh, authority or latitude to kill people because they're being used as human shields. So if it comes back and its or, its report just acknowledges that some civilians have died, it's in violation of, it's admitting, it's admitting that it's violated the court's order. This thing is an absolute disaster for Israel. I, I as a lawyer, trying to figure out, you know, what advice would I have to give my client? You know, my client wouldn't be happy <laughs> with my advice uh, because uh, it basically means that what this order means is that israel has to drastically radically alter its behavior uh towards towards gaza and and basically give up every single one of its stated objectives killing the leadership of hamas uh recovering the hostages by means of force uh you know creating buffer zones destroying civilian infrastructure for that purpose it has to stop all of that
2: i guess what this then comes down to is the internet I I guess how valid not valid but what power does international law really have in today's modern society on an on the on the global stage does this actually because obviously everything you're saying is true but whether or not that will actually affect the actions of the most powerful nations, whether or not that will affect the actions of Israel, Canada, the United States, for example. That's, I think, what I'm curious about, because I don't have that faith in this moment, because I'm seeing the response from our government, the response from the U.S. government, the response from Israel, the response from our media. Will will anything actually change on the ground? do you, like do you, do you still hold faith in that or
1: yes yes i do i'm, I'm ha- sorry to interrupt you but i the short answer is yes and i'm happy to explain why I, let's start with what we know what we know is that israel hasn't stopped killing uh you know i think on the day i just saw a figure i haven't been able to verify it that um within the 24 hours after the court issued its order it killed something like 130 people in gaza it's immediately violated the order in the most egregious way. And that was entirely predictable. So, I, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that that was inevitable. Uh, and this is going to continue for some time. The question is how much time. Uh, and I am heartened by a few things. Uh, and why I think that the pressure has now become unbearable for Israel. And uh, I, I don't say this with great confidence but i think it's more likely than not that sometime in the next several weeks there is going to be some kind of a truce negotiated Uh, now why do i say that Um, first of all uh, again timing is everything it's very telling Uh, within two to three days prior to the decision being issued and anybody with you know uh, an ounce of legal judgment could have foreseen that this was likely going to turn out badly for israel after reading those submission, hearing those submissions, reading the South Africa's application, so within two days of this decision coming out, Israel all of a sudden is reported to be offering a two month truce. Okay, and um, the truce. What's not clear, there was some uh, exchange of hostages being proposed. What's not clear is how many hostages. I haven't been able to find any report on how many hostages willing. Israel was willing to give up in exchange for the hostages that remain in uh, the custody of uh, the Palestinian militants. But it was willing to engage, stop the fighting first uh, for a period of two months and then start a staged exchange of hostages. And it was willing to give the leaders of Hamas safe passage out of Gaza. This is a huge retreat because Israel has said from the very beginning, you know, we just, your, our demand that you give back the hostages is unqualified. You have no right to demand anybody being released on our side. And Of course, they already conceded on that when they, you know, released a lot more people than Hamas released uh, when it gave up its civilian hostages. Uh, but now they're, they're making an even bigger concession. They demanded that the Hamas leadership either be killed or surrender. They're giving up on that. OK, they're allowing them to have free pass, uh, safe passage out of Gaza under their offer. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and they've they've made very clear, by the way, that they aren't going to stop attacking until Hamas is completely removed from power, not just that its leaders be, uh, you know, uh, uh, expelled from Gaza, but that Hamas be completely divested of power as an organization in Gaza. In a way, they're giving up on that, too. Why did they do that? Uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that they anticipated they were going to lose and lose badly at the International Court of Justice, now the decision has been rendered. Every single Western judge voted against Israel. And uh, in the background, it was headline, headline news in The Guardian, which has done an absolutely appalling job of, of reporting on this thing, the so-called progressive guardian on this genocide, um, headline news two days ago that a poll just showed that 35% of Americans despite the relentless pro-Israel propaganda that they are forced to digest every day, believe that Israel is committing genocide.
0: And that was before the ruling.
1: Correct. It's very important. And only 36%, essentially the same percentage, didn't believe, rejected the claim that Israel was committing genocide, and the rest were undecided. And the number of Biden supporters who believed, or, or Democrats, who believed that Israel was committing genocide, I believe was in excess of 50%. So uh, it's only inevitable that in light of this ruling, this can't be spun you know, as a victory for Israel. The most you can do, say, is it's a mixed bag. You might get away with making that bogus claim. But to say it's a victory, so now people are going to know, they're going to understand that this has put the stamp of legal credibility on the claim of genocide The level of uh, the the level of the proportion of the population in in the United States that is going to accept that Israel is committing genocide is inevitably going to go up as a result of this decision. And Biden is entering an election year. The man's prospects for reelection are hanging by a thread. And he has not only, you know, um, it's not just a matter of prestige and power that he be reelected. It's a matter of potentially of his own liberty, because, because quite frankly, there is very substantial evidence that the biden family including genocide joe himself were involved in corruption in ukraine that's that's the reality uh you know there was some very damning evidence on hunter biden's laptop and if trump wins this election he is going to be on the war path that man will not hesitate i am sure after what they tried to do to him and i of course i loathe donald trump i'm no fan of him whatsoever but i think you can anticipate that if he wins the presidential election. He is going to go uh, after payback big time against Biden. I think Biden understands that. So this man has a personal interest in winning. And he's looking at these polling numbers, and he's getting heckled every time he goes into public. Somebody is calling him Genocide Joe. He can't show his face in public without being called Genocide Joe. And the Muslim community and the Arab community are organizing around not voting for Biden, Uh, This man now has a very, very powerful incentive to put a stop to Israel's slaughter, and he can with the snap of his fingers. He just cuts off the military aid. Uh, So, and quite apart from that, and the last thing I'm going to say is that this decision actually puts leaders of Western countries in jeopardy because the Genocide Convention makes it a crime to be complicit in genocide. And Article 1 of the Convention imposes upon all signatories an obligation not only to punish genocide after the fact, but to prevent it from happening. And there's no question now that that obligation, by the way, as was explained by um, an eminent group of international scholars in November, the obligation to prevent genocide is triggered when there is a serious risk that genocide is happening. And the ICJ's decision just has completely put to bed any question of whether there's a serious risk that genocide is happening. The ICJ has overwhelmingly ruled that there is a serious risk that genocide is happening. So the Article One obligation has been triggered. If states like Canada, politicians, and this is the legal advice they should be getting, they're not going to admit it, but I would be very surprised if they're not hearing from uh, you know, Ministry of Justice lawyers exactly what I'm telling you, that if you do not take positive, meaningful steps to stop the genocide in Gaza in the light of the ICJ decision, you are personally exposing yourself to liability for complicity and genocide.
0: And in fact, so, they've already been put on notice before this ICJ ruling that there are people working on leveling charges of not complicity, but I guess in the act of aiding and providing weapons to Israel for the U S and Canadian governments. Is that not right?
1: Like I've, yes, I'm one of those persons. You might
0: know something what I'm talking about then.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, this is a matter that's very dear to my heart. And, uh, I've been having regular discussions with a, a, uh, a team of lawyers, which is growing by the day about what is the best way for ho- us to hold Canadian government officials accountable. And, uh, we are watching very closely what the Canadian government is saying and doing. And uh, I can assure you that if they don't comply with their obligations under Article 1, there is going to be litigation in this country in which their complicity is going to be front and center. Uh, so uh, they are in legal jeopardy, and I want them to understand that very clearly. Uh, and they don't need me to tell them. I'm sure that if, you know, I'm sure there are competent you know, international jurists working for the government, and that's undoubtedly what they're being told.
0: Well, it would help if we also kept reminding them. So like using this ICJ ruling to the movement's benefit, you know, threatening, you don't have to be a lawyer to threaten legal action, right? This is an added reminder, that added bit of leverage when you're going at your MP, when we're demanding like them to change their position. And I think, to a lot of people who wonder, you know, I'm over in Canada, why does my government's position matter so much? How can I really make a difference there? And Dimitri spoke about it, didn't name it, but it's political isolation that Israel is experiencing, right? Because he acknowledged, like, Israel might just th- thumb their nose at the court. A- and they might, and they have done that before, Not maybe not this particular court, but they've had resolutions that they've completely ignored before. But their ability to do what they need to do relies on aid and the alliance of other powerful nations. And if we make it politically impossible for the liberals or the conservatives to do that, right, it's so politically risky here at home, like their jobs are, then they start to isolate Israel in that way, right? And that's where our pressure comes in right? So we may not be able to change Netanyahu's mind, or we may never see them behind bars or to face legal ramifications. I hope we do. But even if we don't, right, that tool is something that we have to then use on our end to complete that kind of isolation process that really is, it's growing, right? The amount of people that have distance themselves the amount of nations that are because the wording that came out after the ICJ ruling even I think like Germany had a much softer more respective kind of statement in terms of the courts than Canada did like Jolie's statement is just absolutely horrendous like she she even says in the statement that Dmitri read out where they have an obligation under international and humanitarian law that they're not even following. So it's you know the the threat of legal ramifications is there. Um and we we have some sway over that but but simply that political toxicity should exist around this issue now. You know like it's just should be so clear to most Canadians that their politicians are are on the wrong side and should suffer heavy political losses for that. The only—you pr- you, kind of named it, and we talked about it on our Twitter space, Dimitri, a little bit, with the U.S. as well, is that, like, both both sides—I know in Canada we have more than two parties. It doesn't feel like that, but we do. But both sides are on the wrong side, to just kind of say it very bluntly. There's no—the only political pressure we're going to get from the inside is— <laughs> from the NDP or maybe Elizabeth May and her hunger strike. Like the, there's no other than us, like other than the people, there's not a lot of political opposition to the Canadian position right now. Like if you hear, I wouldn't dare link it to the show notes, but if anybody heard uh, Pierre Poliev's response to Jolie's statement you know, he criticizes them for not really having a position, which they do. I I, I don't agree there. They're they're clearly pro Zionist. But it he, he mocks them for that and then says that he absolutely acknowledges there's a genocide happening, that it's being committed by Hamas. And then he spends the next minute talking about Hamas and ignoring the ICJ ruling, ignoring Israel's role. And so like that for me that that's that's really maddening because at some point, like you can leverage positions within politics, right? Like, you know, there's a party that can use it another, against another party. But I feel like there's just no good actors on this front, but a few, a few exceptions.
1: Yeah. Well, let's just let's just say unequivocally that uh, Pierre Poilievre is a genocidal racist. I'd say that to his face. I would have said it before the ICJ's decision. I'm even more comfortable saying it now than I was before the decision. He is a genocidal racist. He's as disgraced as a human being. He's unfit to be the mayor of the local gas station, let alone the prime minister of a country. And it's a, disgr- it's a disgrace. It's a disgraceful human being, as are every single... I mean, beyond, now, to be a, to be an advocate for Israel and claim to be fit to serve in public office in this country is so outrageous in light of the ICJ decision. And you're right. There are very few... People we can rely upon to do the right thing, if anybody in Parliament, to actually do the right thing. Uh, but this is a multi-front war. Uh, the decision of the ICJ, or I should use the word struggle, it's a struggle for justice for the Palestinian people, and it is a multi-front struggle. And the decision of the IGA, I- I- ICJ, and you know legal uh, recourse, whether it be in the International Court of Justice or in the domestic courts are just one or two fronts in that multi-front struggle. The other one, of course, is what we do as citizens of conscience. It is absolutely critical that we ramp up the pressure. We have to go. And one thing that I saw, I was very, uh, you know, uh, shall we say, uh, heartened to see this, Um, although there was shock and horror on the part of the political elite, was that some people actually found out where Melanie Jolie lives and they conducted a peaceful protest outside her house. I strongly encourage people to engage in that kind of uh, peaceful protest. Take it to their front step, put this in their face, constantly confront them with their complicity in this genocide, call them out for it, never give them peace of mind, ever. Every time Justin Trudeau shows his face in public, he should have in the back of his mind the fear that he is going to be humiliated. And that depends upon us. We have the power to do it, and we have to be relentless about it. Uh, If we do that and we employ all the tools at our disposal, including legal recourse, where necessary and appropriate, we will win, and we're going to win soon. This is a battle that is being won by the Palestinian people, and yesterday was a huge step towards victory. In the interim, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, outrageously, more people are going to be killed mercilessly by Israel but they are winning. The Palestinians are winning and they will win. I truly believe that. I'm not, I don't think I'm being Pollyannish. I'm not being uh, you know, fantastical in saying that. I would never have said this you know, five months ago. I thought the Palestinians were losing and they were losing badly. It was very upsetting. I saw no real hope for them on the horizon, but now I do. Uh, I think the game has changed dramatically and yesterday's decision is a big part of that change.
0: I'm grateful for your hopefulness, and you know we did speak to a few Palestinians yesterday who felt the same that the 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 support and the knowledge of what is happening in Palestine has never been greater, and often that's half the battle in any movement. I just wanted to sign off with a quote a little bit that i I read from a lawyer, another lawyer, Rabia Egbare and although at first it may sound daunting. Folks should really see hope in it because it really drives home why the Palestinian struggle is a much greater struggle right for all of us. She said, the road to achieve justice in Palestine is long and exhausting because it disrupts international power structures and demands radical change to undo the colonial hierarchies persisting in the 21st century. So when we do win, it will be a huge win. Right. So
1: absolutely. Well said. And hey, we're winning.
0: Thank you so much for joining us at such, such short notice and providing such an insightful perspective on such a critical ruling. Um even my kids understood the historic moment of it all. I was—I never asked for the TV kids. I need to hear the television right now, and and uh, they actually cooperated because I just don't normally do that. There's not much to watch on there, but this this was pivotal. Although it did require a little bit of digesting, I think, to get to that point, right?
1: But yeah, I'll, I'll just say I'll just thank you very much for having me on. Always a pleasure to talk to you, uh, and you're doing great work, both of you. Thank you. Um, you know, the, 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 just so you understand the sincerity of my feeling about this decision as I was listening to it yesterday morning live, when they got to the part where they were given the order, I was pumping my fist, like my Super Bowl favorite football team just scored a touchdown in the dying seconds of the big game. Like that's how good a decision I felt this was. Uh, and, uh, people should take great hope away from this decision.
2: I'm definitely a lot more hopeful after this conversation than I was yesterday. That's for sure.
1: I'm glad to hear that. Thanks very much again for having me.
0: That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.